these kids have horrendous nightmares that are recurrent and lucid. They have night terrors. They have teeth grinding. They have bedwetting. And that's the reason why we decided to start treating some of these kids with ketamine. Because I've been treating these children for quite some time. And there was very little that I felt I was able to do with traditional medications. And when I saw her, <laughs> I remember it felt like this burden just released from my body that there was something that we could now offer to children that had this condition. Welcome. I'm your host, Nicholas Strauss, and you're listening to The Participant Observer, a space where you become aware, a place where you are the participant observer. Why don't we begin just very briefly by explaining to somebody who doesn't fully understand some of the symptoms of bipolar disorder, what it is. So classically in adults, bipolar disorder has been defined as two poles that are extreme. The manic or hypomanic, which is less than manic, typically presents with symptoms that involve cognition, for example, like racing thoughts, flights of ideas, a pressured speech where you're talking and talking and talking and trying to get all of the thoughts out of your head at once and you brook no interruption, basically. Someone experiencing a person who's manic feels like thinking a word in edgewise and the flight of ideas that might be coming out seem like a very tangential or somewhat referential description of whatever it is that's going on in their mind. Typically, there's an enormous amount of energy, hyperactivity, sometimes hard to distinguish, at least in children, from attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity. Additionally, what we typically see is either an elated or euphoric mood or an irritable mood, and they can be interchangeable. I would say that's sort of the most, the most prominent symptoms that you would see in someone that is experiencing mania or hypomania. And then typically what goes up must come down, typically into a depressive state, which is I mean, the most cardinal symptom of depression is more subjective, which is a loss of interest, a loss of a sense of pleasure, a feeling like there's nothing in front of me that's ever going to bring me pleasure. And that's kind of the internal state. The depressed mood, sad, tearful, a loss of energy, fatigue, and uh, a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. The term kind of social defeat, I think, captures a little bit of the essence of the way a person feels, and they're withdrawn often and isolated from others, and feel a sense of everything's a burden, even the smallest activity. Those, are, again, are more of the primary symptoms of, of the depressive pull that you would see in adults. I imagine that it is sometimes more difficult to diagnose bipolar disorder. Well, with depression, for example, there's often a great deal of uh, isolation. There's a lot of shame about it, often a lot of self-talk that's involved that keeps people from looking at it, diagnosing it, and treating it uh, in a timely manner. That's one of the problems with uh, treating depression. I would imagine there's similar difficulties in understanding 
identifying, treating mania in and of itself. And that when you have someone who has these alternating poles, this bipolar disorder, that they are even more hesitant to come forward because when they're feeling depressed, they may not want to come forward because of that shame I first talked about. But then when they're feeling panic, it's kind of a relief and a pleasure and something good. They are glad to be out of the depression and maybe now thinking, well, that passed. Uh, I don't really need to come forward to get treatment for anything just yet. Do, do you find that there's more of a delay with people who have bipolar disorder in terms of getting treatment? Oh, yeah. I think um, it can go for years undiagnosed and untreated, particularly in the, in the milder forms, because people who become slightly manic or hypomanic often have enormous energy. They feel wonderful. They're able to do many things. And why would that be considered a negative thing in any way? The depressive periods that they typically have are also much more problematic for, for them. But as you said, shame and social withdrawal keep them from asking or trying to get help. I think maybe more than anything else is the sense of a lack of worthiness and feeling undeserving of getting help. That and, and just this defensive sense of not wanting to acknowledge a vulnerability. Right. So now, as strange as this may sound, is it easier to diagnose pediatric bipolar disorder because you may have parents who are alarmed about their children's behavior who are insistent about bringing the child forward? In other words, even if the child's feeling ashamed or scared about it, you have a parent who is hopefully advocating. Right. I think that's true. I think parents seek early on, unless they're a first-time parent, because the symptoms for pediatric onset bipolar disorder are often uh, onset early, and there are a number of symptoms which we probably should talk about that also occur with adults. In answer to your question, I think the problem would lie less with the parents than with the profession. Because there's no current definition in the diagnostic manual for pediatric bipolar disorder. The folks that did the most recent version of the DSM, DSM-5, were so concerned that bipolar disorder was being overdiagnosed that they decided to create a category of not bipolar disorder, basically. The problem is, is that most healthcare providers are kind of out there in the river in a canoe without a paddle, right? Because if nobody who is in authority provides you with a diagnosis, a, you know, at least something to guide you to determine whether a child has this condition, how do you come to that decision yourself? Right. You have to really be willing to go outside the sort of traditional diagnostic system, right. um, which I think increasingly people are. I mean, most of us who are doing research very firmly believe what the director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Tom Insel, said about two days before the DSM-5 was published, and that is that the DSM is no better than a dictionary and that there are no categories of diagnosis that have been validated and that it's going to take 10 years for there to be more scientifically based diagnostic system that we can use. Temporarily, we're limping along with a essentially a consensus diagnostic system that really in many, many ways doesn't make sense. And perhaps one of the most glaring places where we see that is with bipolar disorder in childhood. 
you had mentioned you wanted to talk about some of the similarities in the symptomatology between childhood mm-hmm. bipolar disorder and adulthood. Well, there are a number of similarities. I think more importantly, you talked about differences. What I was talking about then was I, was I didn't mention when you asked me about primary symptoms, the sleep arousal problems that occur with, uh, with bipolar disorder in adults. There's every kind of insomnia and uh, sleep-wake reversals, particularly with hypomania. You have trouble getting to sleep. Uh, there's a truncated sleep cycle. So, so there's, it's a prominent part of the syndrome. In children, particularly those children who would be given the diagnosis not bipolar, have a very, very specific set of symptoms that is, once you know it, it's very easy to identify. And this is the group of kids that we identified as a novel syndrome, basically. I understand that your research team was able to identify a subtype of bipolar disorder, Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's called or termed uh, fear of harm. Mm-hmm. It's uh, quite a dramatic attention-getting category, mm-hmm. um, really striking. Mm-hmm. So please please let me know, what, what is that exactly? When we first started doing research in this area, which was over 10 years ago, childhood bipolar disorder was non-existent as a thought in anybody's mind. In fact, if you were a psychiatrist and you diagnosed a child with bipolar disorder, it was like you were a heretic. There was a long-standing mythology that the condition did not exist in childhood. When we got into the business of uh, trying to do genetic studies to look at early onset bipolar disorder, we had the task of having to identify homogeneous groups of kids that we felt had the condition. We had a very, very large sample of children, about 5,000 cases with sib pairs and twins, and we were very lucky to be able to get that information. And we had decided to, since we knew pretty much at the time clinically, a lot of the symptoms that children had in bipolar disorder. And the fact that they were frequently diagnosed with three or four other DSM conditions, there were all of these so-called comorbidities that were lumped together. And they were frequently, if you saw one of these children, they'd come to you with five different diagnoses, usually ADHD, separation anxiety disorder, OCD, sleep disorder. So DSM was trying to fit this category, but the boundaries were so porous that it encompassed four or five other conditions according to the categorical diagnosis that's used. We took symptoms from 10 different DSM categories and put them into basically one questionnaire along with symptoms that we knew were characteristic and had already been shown to be characteristic in research studies had been done by many researchers at that point. We were able then to determine that there were 10 different dimensions of symptoms that basically factored out. And we looked at those dimensions within um, looking at the heritability of them by looking at sibling pairs, uh, biologically related, and then pairs that were not related who had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder by someone in the community. And we were able to then determine that there were five or six factors, one primarily, that was heritable. 
And that one is the one that turned out to be called fear of harm. Essentially what we did, we did a, a factor analysis looking at these heritable features and we, we found a group of six factors that sorted out from this population of five or 6,000 cases that we had. And it was a very clear, well-delineated group of symptoms that you wouldn't I mean, it was counterintuitive. It didn't, didn't kind of make sense that things would factor out in this way. For example, one of the primary factors was sleep arousal problems, nightmares, night terrors, bruxism, uh, teeth grinding, bedwetting, carbohydrate craving, and contamination fears, all sorted out into one specific category. And then the, there were, I won't go into all of the other f- factors, one of them that I would like you to touch on is thermal dysregulation. Yes. Uh, very striking. It makes sense in terms of understanding that the hypothalamus is regulating our temperature and mm-hmm. all of these other systems that uh, relate to what you've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes sense that that could be out of whack as well. Yes. So the next step was to look at these kids and to, to bring them in and see what they actually look like. And uniformly, over 90% of them turned out to have this thermoregulatory problem, which on the face of it was pretty bizarre. Right. But they, the reports were from a very early age, they were, they were hot babies, they would overheat at night, they would sweat. And also, the mothers described that they were chasing after them all the time in the winter to put clothes on them. They would go out into 30-degree temperature with shorts on and uh, have no problem with it. So again, that's a thermoregulatory dysfunction. So those were the clinical symptoms that led us to the understanding that there was something going on with thermoregulation. We didn't, at that point, make the connection between that and the other symptomatology until we really began to look at the research on um, sleep arousal problems, which was a cardinal set of symptoms. These parents, the, the first responders for these kids are pediatricians. They bring them because these kids have horrendous nightmares that are recurrent and lucid. They have night terrors. They have teeth grinding. They have bedwetting, all of the symptoms that typically you would bring your child to see a pediatrician for if if it was severe. Unfortunately, um, a lot of that stuff gets normalized and it's seen as developmental and something that happens. Pediatricians just aren't sensitized to the fact that this isn't just, you know, a few nights of bedwetting or, or, you know, a nightmare that occurs, you know, every once in a while. These kids are having blood-curdling nightmares that lead them out of their bed into their parents' bed for years sometimes. It's so complicated. There's so many chains of communication in which the child can be overlooked. I mean, the way in which the parent communicates it, if, as you say, it's not made clear to the pediatrician that this is going on for more than a few nights. And then the way the pediatrician may interpret it, establishing that they understand that or not, or looking at the thermal dysregulation as whether it's an infection or related to this other conglomeration of symptomatology that you've been talking about, the education that's needed for the the pediatrician to know about this, other associations about how uh, thermal dysregulation could be linked to aggression or violence because the heat in and of itself is sometimes a, a characteristic trait that's prevalent when people are aggressive or or violent. 
you know, things that they need to know they have to have in their head just as they're observing all of these things that are being reported to them and following up on it. The temperature dysregulation issue rarely gets reported and nobody ever asks about it. Right. I mean, temperature, you know, who teaches about temperature having anything to do with behavior or sleep arousal disorders? I mean, you would have to have a fairly wide knowledge and know the chronobiology literature to, for example, know that the difference between your proximal and distal temperature determines when you go to sleep and when you wake up in the morning. And it also determines the transitions between dream and non-dream sleep so that it has an effect on sleep onset, sleep offset. And if there's a problem in transitioning between these stages of sleep, that's what causes sleep arousal disorders. So Understanding thermal dysregulation sounds like it's something that people need to understand, doctors need to understand this in and of itself because we're talking about incredibly vital data that could explain all kinds of issues, sleep disorders, sleep deprivation. uh, Narcolepsy. Narcolepsy. Latest studies in narcolepsy are showing that there's abnormal thermoregulatory problems. Wow, it's it's really astonishing. It's it, it it's they, the pedi- pediatricians don't know to ask. The knowledge isn't there, and nowhere is it written, as far as I know, that there is a relationship between temperature and behavior. At least one that so closely um, can be observed. And, and except in uh, some articles about uh, geography and evolution in terms of regions in which the climate is much hotter and there appears to be data that the people living there can be more aggressive Mm -hmm. in comparison to if you're looking at uh, other areas where the temperatures are are more temperate. Well, there's, there's seasonal data also on homicide rates based on the changes in temperature during very, very hot periods of time and then much higher. I mean, if you think about it, Temperature controls every chemical reaction in the body. Right. It's involved in every one of them. So if you have a change in in temperature, I mean, it can affect brain state. And if you make the connections and you see that one degree difference in temperature is what switches you from one complete state of arousal, you know, REM into another, it's pretty profound actually. Well, curiously, one of the things you talked about was these the mothers chasing the children uh, either inside the house or outside the house mm-hmm. without clothes on or in the wintertime. Clearly, I think what you're saying is that children are cooling themselves down to some degree to help themselves either soothe themselves or remediate some of the symptoms. So really, without being direct about this, people have been making observations that thermal regulation and dysregulation over the years is really a very, very important part of both what could be the etiology of the disease and what could be the cure or, or aid in, uh, in the cure. When we realized that fear sensitization and temperature dysregulation were critical aspects of the syndrome, we basically decided to ask, are there any treatments that would affect both? And we looked into it and we found that actually there was one that in animal studies dramatically reduced fear sensitization and also dose-dependently lowered body temperature. And that was ketamine. And that's the reason why we decided to start treating some of these kids with ketamine about nine, ten years ago. And the results were dramatic. I mean, uh, from 
severely symptomatic, horrible sleep arousal disorders, nightmares, severe separation anxiety, which is one of the behaviors that emerges out of the early sleep arousal symptoms, gone. I mean, within hours when a bolus of IV ketamine was the first treatment that we used to give to a child, and she responded dramatically well, and the temperature dysregulation also went away. Well, you yourself as a researcher were cautiously optimistic. Well, when it lasted two weeks, and (laughs) this child had been on every psychotropic medication you can imagine, it was very hard to tell the mother that we weren't going to be able to continue with the treatment. So at that point, we decided that we were going to try to, because, you know, giving IV ketamine on a regular basis is one, very, very expensive, but also potentially problematic. And these children also, as part of the fear sensitization, are needle phobic. So we decided to compound the drug as an intranasal spray. And we started using it with this first child in that way. And we were able to maintain her stability by using it intranasally and giving it every three days. It's just amazing. It's really amazing. I can only imagine that the parents felt you were a a hero. I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot with that kind of praise, but Really and truly, when you think about this, you're talking about children that are going through something that healthcare providers without the education that we've been speaking of might at least try to categorize as something close to post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, in and of itself, that's horrifying for a child. The healthcare provider, the parents, everybody's wondering, what is going on? What is this poor child going through? I mean, terror, a child in terror. And everybody may be looking in every corner of their environment and asking all kinds of questions and still not able to find anything. And I can imagine the moment that you're providing relief for this child. And of course, by extension, therefore, for the family, the alarmed parents, that it must have been quite a holy moment for you as the treatment team and for the family. Well, I can tell you, I remember exactly when the mother brought the child in to see me the first time after we had given the IV ketamine, three or four or five days later, because I'd been treating these children for quite some time, and there was very little that I felt I was able to do with uh, traditional medications. Um, And when I saw her, (laughs) I remember it felt like this burden just released from my body that there was something that we could now offer to children that had this condition. So uh, it was quite a moment for me. Now, if people hear this and are motivated to seek treatment... uh, I'm here in Westport. I'm available. Do they have to qualify for the study in some way? We're not doing a study, per se. I mean, it's really just an open-label treatment. If If they have fear of harm, you know, by our definition, then we will... You know, and they haven't responded to other treatments, um, then, then we will treat them. We'll treat them. That's great. Thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Thank you. This is Nicholas Strauss. I've enjoyed having you with us today. If you'd like to participate some more, please visit us on the web at www.theparticipantobserver.com, where you'll find all things related to the Participant Observer. We'd love to hear from you because you are the Participant Observer.